Well, Deuteronomy 23, um, there's quite a few things. If we get through all of the chapters tonight, we're going to talk about laws of divorce and remarriage, laws of tithes and vows, promises you make, laws of gleaning of the poor or the fields of Israel, laws concerning a childless widowed uh, woman. Um, I'm sure this is not the first thing that you thought of, but what happens to her? And the Bible is going to tell us about it. Uh, there's several miscellaneous laws for the nation that we will not cover, but I think that I've really tried as we've gone through the law to make certain that if I didn't get it in Exodus, that I'm picking it up here. If I didn't get it in Leviticus, I'm definitely picking it up here. So that's going to be uh, the attempt. And we're going to hear about blessings and cursings being shouted down from the hills surrounding Shechem, and we'll take some time to consider that. But a little bit of an introduction here. I've talked about this before, but I want to I want to talk about it again. I was in a really good conversation with a brother this past week, and um, he specifically mentioned Deuteronomy 23 um, in his question. And he's like, "Wow, you know, we you know we read Deuteronomy 23, you know, on Sunday morning, talking about um, matters of you know, uh, uh, you know, not mutilating the body." And then we're going to talk about, you know, um, this other item, and we apply this one thing, but we don't apply that. So how do we know what to apply to ourselves today? I'm sure you've thought through this. It's a big critique that people make of the scriptures. It's like, well, yeah, you guys make a big deal about, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, thou shalt not commit, you know, uh, sexual immorality. But but meanwhile, you you are okay, and you go and eat a pork sandwich. And I've got a verse for it, too. So, um, so how does that work, though? How does it work? How do we know? And so we've taken time as we've gone through the law to discuss this. But, but here's the bottom line. The law, all of it has passed away. Um, not just the ceremonies, not just the, um, uh, the, the calendar, um, and not just the moral aspects of the law. All of it is there. It's, I, I would argue that it's in indivisible unit. If you sin in one part of the law, you sin in what? All of it. You, you can't divide. So for Israel, um, this is theirs. No, so around 1446 BC, they get, they get their law. But thousands of years have transpired before there was any Mosaic law. So do we conclude then that God had no standards of righteousness and that man was living lawless? Well, no. Not, not if you've read your Bible, you don't think that. You, you've heard of the great flood, right? You've heard of how the Lord dealt with um, Cain, who committed murder. Um, we, we, we know how he dealt with others um, before the law came. And there's a sense of Sodom and Gomorrah were judged before the law was given. So it's not to say that man was lawless. God has put it in his heart how he ought to live. And so, but in 1446, right around that period of time, the Exodus, they are given a mo the Mosaic law. But that, even as it had a start date, it had an end date, and that was at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It stopped. Now, some will say, well, you say that, therefore you must think that you're to live lawless. I don't think we're to live lawless any more than I think they lived lawless before the law the Mosaic law was given. Do you, do you follow the logic there? 
So there's always been a, a standard of righteousness in which God wanted us to live. We're happened to read, and there's a good portion of our Bible that is dedicated to the law of Moses. But there was those things that God had put in the heart of man before and after we have the New Testament that leads us and guides us. All that to say, the answer to the question is what part do we pick up and what part do we not, you know, or do we leave down from the law of Moses is put it all down, use the word of God in the New Testament to give you both um, doctrine and instruction and practice within the church on how to live. And so we will find that many of the things that are spoken of, morally speaking, um, in the Old Testament, that they carry over into the New Testament, and that's how you do it. So I want to show you this here. It's related. Um, may have to think a little bit. How's he trying to make this connection? But I'll let you do that. So you probably can't read all of this, but there are five numbers on this little uh, map here. On the left side of the map, it's uh, one. The river is two. The bridge that goes across is three, where you see that billboard is four, and then five on the modern town. And, and this is how we go about studying scripture and interpreting scripture. This is a, an example of how to do that. It's not the um, you know, only method, but I believe that these principles have to be found somewhere in, in whatever method you pick up. So what is this? And really, it's number three that I want to talk about related to this point. Well, number one is, um, the point is, what did it mean to the biblical audience when it was written? So when Joshua was written, and it said that they were to drive out the Canaanites. What did it mean to them? Well, very literal, they were driving out the Canaanites. I mean, this, they went and they had physical battles. It's no metaphor. It's no symbol. So this is what, you know, um, the conquest meant to them. Um, and then the second, so we want to discover what it means to them. The, the second part is that river that goes through, and this is, we have to know and identify what the differences are between them and us. If I'm going to read about Joshua and how he's commanded to go out and kill and destroy the Canaanite cities and those that have rebelled against the Lord for, you know, four or five centuries, and he's going to bring judgment for their wickedness using the Israelites, I, I need to know if I'm supposed to go you know, am I supposed to get on the plane and do something over there? Or, you know, and we all intuitively know, no, no, we don't do that. But how do you know not to do that? Don't do it, okay? <laughs> don't do it. Because, the, and so what are the differences? So if I read that there and I'm here, then how do I know? So there are five things that we've got to pay attention to under point two that help us to determine the differences. Number one, culture. What's happening with culture? For example, if you read the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, you're going to have some culture there you got to deal with. Don't pull that over the river because it doesn't work. It didn't even work back then, but you read the story. There's stuff of language. Some, sometimes you'll read some things in language, and so this is where a good place where you'll hear me give this word means, or this is an idiom that meant. Um, then time situation, and then lastly, and I would say the most significant difference you have to identify is that of, anybody want to guess? You can read it, maybe. What is it? Covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. This is the biggest thing you have to identify. Now, fortunately for us, it's pretty easy. 
If you're in the Old Testament, chances are you're in the Old Covenant. Now, you could go you know, before the, the giving of the covenant if you're in the early chapters of the or books of the Bible, but you're in the Old Covenant. So that's a major difference, and you have to account for culture, language, time, situation, and covenant, Old Covenant, New Covenant. That's what we're talking about. So good question. How do we know what parts, as we read through the Old Testament, when it gives specific commandments, do I follow or obey? Well, first of all, you've got to say, well, this is Old Covenant. Does it carry over to the bridge? Does it get on the other side of the river into? Number four is, um, uh, by the way, is, um, you know, check it with the rest of Scripture. Because you're going to, number three, you're going to make a principle. Check that principle with the rest of Scripture. Is it true? Number five, apply it to your own town. So the differences. Now, once you identify the differences, you have to take the, if you're going to apply the word of God, you got to get it from their side of the river to your side of the river. And this is where you... It's called the principalizing bridge, and it's the hardest part of biblical interpretation, is to find a principle where you will ponder the law. Now, sometimes it comes in your mind right away. So I said, and I know all of you agree, that you know, Joshua was commanded to, go, to you know, go on the conquest, and you know that we are not going to go over there and carry on that conquest. So does the word of God have no relevance to us? No, there's a principle to be found in the command for Joshua to go and, and uh, you know, drive out the nations before him. So is it that I physically go over there and do that? No, that wouldn't be the principle because the old covenant would, be, would prevent me from doing that. So what's the principle? Well, here's one. It doesn't matter what God says to do. I must be completely obedient to it. And so that's a principle that was true for Joshua application for him was literal drive the Canaanites out. But for us, the principle of I should be true to the word of God, yeah. So when we're in the New Testament, we're reading it, I need to be obedient to it. And so that's a principle that arises. And this is where um, I would say uh, most false teaching comes into the church um, especially within the church when it comes up, is that we fail to understand the differences of the covenant. Um, everybody should be wealthy. You don't find that in the New Testament, but you do find promises of wealth to the Israelites in the Old Testament in the Old Covenant. There's a difference and a distinction. And so is that something that carries over to the New Testament? Well, yeah, I hope so. I want to be rich. Well, okay, that's nice that you hope so. But... Is there a principle, is there a clear teaching in the New Testament that says all of us are going to be wealthy? I, actually, you're going to read it and it's going to sound very, very different, right? It talks about, you know, blessed are the poor. Um, it's going to talk about um, with food and clothing, we should be content. You're going to find a lot of verses like that, right? So it's not promising wealth in the New Testament. So, so what people do is they say, look, and they'll go to the Old Testament and they'll say, see, in the Old Testament it says this, or I could give you a bunch of other things, you know, don't eat the pork sandwich, um, you know, on and on the list goes. So we're always, as we read it, we've got to come over to the New Testament and say, is there a truth that is parallel to that? Is there a principle? So the principle for the conquest is, it doesn't matter what God tells you to do, you must be obedient to it. And you got to identify what God's told you to do in the new covenant. And then you want to, how does it fit? Number four, how does it fit with the rest of scripture? Um, so how do you like my principle? No matter what God says, we should be obedient to it. I think we can find some proof in the Bible that that is a good principle. 
And then lastly, apply it to my town. So um, the Lord says I should love my neighbor. I got to be obedient to that. So th this is a, I realize this is quick, um, but I just want us to, to have that. And as we go through, uh, you know, I'm going to illustrate it, not in step one, two, three, four, five, but you will see how we work through that. Okay. Long introduction. Let's move on. Chapter 23. Here we have some laws of separ separation and public hygiene. So there's a list of people and or nations that we're going to read about that were to be kept from enjoying uh, being a part of the nation, at least it, for a period of time. And much of these limitations was to communicate the holiness of God and the necessity to be totally separated from the worship of the pagans and what happens in their temples. So we begin reading verse 23, verse 1. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So, yeah, this is you shall not, you know, be trying to alter your physical body, specifically in your, uh, you know, in, in, as a man in your reproductive um, organs, your, you got it. All right, I, I went there on Sunday morning. You, you can go look it up. I mean, I'm, I said enough about that on Sunday. So, but here, here's, you shouldn't do that. And then we're like, okay, but I mean, wow, this poor guy, I mean, what if some kind of accident happened to him and now he can't come in? Mm -mm. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about some accident that took place. Um, now, in Leviticus, we do read that people with physical handicaps had limitations from being um, serving in, in the priesthood on, in certain ways. So we do have that, but that's not what's in view here. Um, what we're talking about is something that probably was going on at a pagan cultic temple. And then they were just trying to come on over into the new temple in town, the tabernacle, and they just wanted to come on over and worship. And, you know, they're, they're doing these things over here. So I read this on Sunday. I'll read it again. But it says, scholars speculate that either an interest in distancing Israel's worship from certain pagan cults in which mutilation played a significant role. So in these pagan temples, they were mutilating themselves, um, probably connected with some kind of, you know, fertility rites. And, and so... The Lord says, I don't want that coming in. I don't want that kind of practice coming over. He, he goes on and says, or a revulsion against blurred gender boundaries or the sense that such mutilation represented an offense against God's injunction to procreate may have been a motivating factor. Such mutilation also disqualifies priests and renders animals unfit for sacrifice. So there's, there, there are a couple of things that may be going on here, but this would seem to be the most likely. One other author says, uh, possibly also because castration was imposed on certain personnel in the Canaanite sanctuary, the practice was forbidden in Israel. So again, it's, these are laws about separation. This is not simply a law about um, a birth defect or something like that. This is something that uh, most believe is connected to the pagan worship temple. But as you carry this over, this principle over today, we may not have a pagan temple that's going on, but, you know, we know that the Lord um, does not want us to worship idols and ha or have anything to do with that. And, and we also know that our bodies are the temple of the Lord and we need to um, honor the Lord with them. 
and, um, and not to engage in sexual immorality, which in our day, a lot of the uh, sex changes that are going on has everything to do with um, sexual immorality. And so sexual immorality, this is where this principle would be, would be, um, would be picked up. Um, in chapter uh, 22, there was a prohibition against dressing as a person of the opposite sex. So you can go back to our last study. And I think you can, again, you know, go listen to that. Listen to Sunday morning study where we talked about this in detail. Um, so it's trying to prevent a perversion and a corruption from entering into the worship of Yahweh with what was going on in those other pagan temples. It's rejecting God's creative plan or it's an association with pagan worship, either of which the Lord forbids. In verse two, we have another equally challenging verse to read here. It says, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And we read that, I was like, well, that's just cold. But again, let's, let's dig in a little bit. What, what do we have as we are considering what it meant in their town? What do we have with culture? What do we have in, in the reading and in the words? What, uh, how did the, some of the ancients that were dealing with this and applying this, how did they understand this to be? Um, I don't think this, you're going to find this to be anywhere near as harsh as it may sound in the, in the reading that of at least in the New King James. So even as the men in the previous verses were not welcomed because of pagan connections, I would think contextually this is probably another pagan connection that was going on. And um, what would often take place is temple prostitutes getting pregnant would have children, um, of course, not because of marriage, but because of the prostitution going on at that place. And then these children would become um, often dedicated to carrying out the pagan worship at those temples. So let me read to you. This is from Raymond Brown. Um, it's in the commentary, the message uh, commentary of Deuteronomy. And um, this is what we read. The prohibition of a man who has been physically mutilated. Okay, we talked about that. Is probably a further reference to the corrupt ceremonies of Canaanite religion, which practiced castration as is that of a child of a forbidden marriage, which probably, here we are, describes the son or daughter of a Canaanite temple prostitute. At birth, the child will have been dedicated to a pagan god, and it would be both disobedient and harmful to attempt to mix paganism with the worship of the only true God. So uh, th this is where I will land on, on that. I believe that is the case. Um, going back to some of the exegetes like back into the Mishnah, um, which was writings of the Jews, um, they, they use this um, again with the idea of a, a child that's come illegitimately through um, mixed marriages with the people there to be driving out. Um, another, uh, it's not scripture, but it's, it's just an insight. And the Talmud um, would go on and say much of what I just said. And I'll just read uh, this quote. Talmud understands it as a designation for the offspring of incestuous or adulterous unions uh, of a prostitute. Um, so this is, again, the idea behind this. It's not um, as simple as maybe our, our first reading. So as you dig in, you realize again, the Lord is trying to keep the worship of himself pure and separate from the corrupting influences 
that were going on in the nations. So I'll let you dig into that more if you care to, but um, we'll leave it right there. What we see is there are depraved cultures, both physically and morally, that were in the land, and the Lord's like, don't allow this stuff to come in. Um, and the consequences were real for that corruption and that moral um, you know, degradation. And, and, and the Lord wants us to be holy today. And so we're to be set apart. We don't allow the world around us to set the standards. We don't find out what's going on in the culture and then pick that up in the church. We go to the word of God and we allow that to lead us and guide us. Yeah, but it's narrow. Well, I think there's a really well-known person that said it was gonna be narrow. Anybody wanna guess what his name was? Jesus said that. Jesus said narrow is the path of his life. So, you know, we don't adopt the philosophy that was judged in the Old Testament that says every man was doing what was right in his own eyes because what came after that was judgment. So, we need to be set apart and holy to the Lord. And in verses three through seven, you have nations that are not welcomed. The Moabites and the Ammonites were not welcomed because of their harshness. In verses three through seven, um, they were not welcomed because of their harshness towards the Israelites when they were leaving, um, uh, you know, in the wilderness and wouldn't let them, you, you know, um, cut through their land, wouldn't allow them to um, get food and they tried to lead them into idolatry, and so there was a strong separation that was going to take place um, from them. So you can see in verse 3, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Hmm. Hmm. Anybody got a problem in their mind with reading that and thinking through who may have a mother that at one time was a Moabite in their lineage? Yeah, Ruth. Jesus was a descendant of Ruth, who was a Moabite. So what are we to make of that? Well, what we're to make of it is that what the Lord is saying is there might be a mixing of the nations. But I believe we can safely say anytime there is somebody who says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God, the Lord welcomes that person and no matter what nation they're from. And so when you put it all together, we can, we can begin to understand the heart and the mind of the Lord. So again, I think this is just not allowing the nations to come in and corrupt what they're doing. Um, now the Edomites and the Egyptians, a couple of other nations that are named here in uh, this section, um, they, they're, it's a little bit different for them. So in verse four, um, not as difficult on the Edomites and the Egyptians. The Edomites, because they're relatives, descendants of, Jake, um, of Edom. Uh, Jacob, the father of Israel, his twin brother. So because of the family relationship, they would be able to, to come in. The Egyptians, because, now they were harsh with them during the you know, oppressive years when they were in Egypt, but they also were kind to them at the very beginning. Remember when they came down. So the Lord is repaying that kindness and that favor. So, um, forbidden nations, forbidden children, forbidden men. So, I think the overarching context is don't allow the worship to get corrupted. And verses 9 through 14, they get some simple instruction, keep the camp clean. Um, so, instruction for public health. Um, they were to um, never defile themselves in battle. Um, so, you know, the thing that happens, and I'm not speaking from experience, but from reading, that happens when you have people that go out to battle 
and they're going to take a person's life. There's a lot of natural, um, don't do that things that drop. And, and what is really bad is that when, it's more, when it turns out to be more than just defeating the army in front of them and it begins to be pillaging and ravaging and destroying and um, cruelty. And the Lord's like, yeah, don't, don't do that stuff. Um, and so he says, you know, and if you have, when you come back, you got to clean yourself outside the camp. Um, but what we also find out is when they've got to go to the bathroom, don't do it right in front of your neighbor's tent, okay? That's rude. Um, what you need to do is you need to go outside the camp and you need to take, they don't call it a shovel, but, you know, take a shovel with you, dig a hole, okay? Just like if you're on a trail, right? You're going, you know, backpacking, dig a hole and bury what you leave behind. And so this is something that's so simple. You're like, well, I mean, did they need to be told that? True story. True story. Over um, in a country where you've done a lot of ministry, we're meeting with these people. They're an unreached people group. And um, they, kids were sick all the time. Um, they had no uh, toilets in their house. They had no communal toilet area. And so they just went in the village, wherever. And so um, a team of us were over there. I wasn't a part of the conversation. I, was, I, know, I know the town, but uh, the conversation was we came and said, hey, we'd like to build for you some outhouses. We're going to put, you know, we're going to dig them deep. We're going to have a place where you could do this and it'll be better for you. They're like, well, where are you going to put it? So they started fighting about where the outhouse was going to go, where the bathroom was going to go. And so they couldn't, everybody wanted it. Where do you think they wanted it? Right by their house. And so they're like, well, you know, so they said, no, forget it. We're not going to do it. And they're like, well, so now they're trying to persuade. And I'm like, well, don't your kids get sick? Well, yeah, they do get sick, but they're sick all the time. Yeah, but I mean, don't you want to, to not be sick and not die? Because this is something that can help if you're, if you're contaminating the water and the sickness and all this stuff going on. And their answer was, if they die, we can have more. Because they didn't want to walk out at 2 a.m. very far away from their house. So we may read this and think, well, oh, come on, does it need to be in there? It needs to be in there. And so this is something that, you know, yeah, we, we, whoever just gasped, yeah, we did that too. And we're just like, we don't know what to do. We ended up building them, by the way. We, ended, we persuaded them uh, to build them. But, um, you know, the, the, the laws of public hygiene, you know, we just take them for granted. But that's not the way it was and still is in many places in the world today. Now, um, verse 15 uh, and 16, we come to this. It says, um, in speaking of um, slaves, it says, you shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses with one, within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. So we struggle and we've tried our best to give good explanations of, you know, when it talks about slavery and, and allowing it and the differences between Old Testament slavery among um, the Hebrews, what's similar to what we think of as slavery, what's different. But here's one thing that's clearly different. And it's not only different from the kind of slavery that went on in this country, but it's very different from even what was happening in the rest of the world. There's a, um, you can put up this, that next slide. There's a 
this uh, something called Hammurabi's Code, okay? And this is from he, laws that were written in Babylon. And this is about seven to eight feet tall, and there is writing all over it. And it was placed in the public squares in these different villages. And in this, you will find um, a lot of things written down that sound very similar to what we read in, in the Law of Moses. And so, um, you know, like, see, there's a problem. The Word of God, oh, wait a minute, their, their creation. And so that they would understand some really good things to do. They it would be in the heart and their minds as just, a, you know, as God's creation should not surprise us. Um, but Hammurabi's code, although there are, there are things that are very similar, this is a place where it is different. And, um, and actually, what it says is that if you were harboring a runaway slave, you could be executed. So, you know, very common, people trying to get out of oppressive situations, get out of it, but they come to you, and you're a Hebrew, you have to welcome them in, and you cannot turn them in, you've got to be kind to them. If you're in Babylon, and you're a runaway slave, and you wanted to stay in somebody's house, or like, I'm not taking that on me. I could be put to death for helping you out. I can't help you. So very different um, approaches. So, um, so this was somewhere around 1790 to 1750 BC when uh, these were, were being written and put in place. So on that, a seven to eight foot tall stone, 282 laws, in case you were wondering. That's how many were found there. You move on, verses 17 through 18 of chapter 23. It talks about forbidding prostitution um, and that no money that came from prostitution should be given to the Lord or if you sell a dog. So, um, you know, it's the idea that dog was unclean, and so this is part of what went on there. But, but, you know, prostitution, forbidden, all kinds of sexual immorality are forbidden in the New Testament. Um, you're not to defraud somebody. So this is from Thessalonians. So prostitution should not be going on today. It's, it shouldn't be happening. This is something that God forbids in the New Testament. Don't defraud somebody. So if you're making money off the sexual desires and lust, the illicit sexual desires and, and lust of somebody, um, that's prostitution and that's considered illegal. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, you can just see how you can work through some of these principles. Does this apply? Does that not apply? Uh, verses 19 through 20, told not to take advantage of your uh, countrymen when they're, you know, in a, you know, obviously a difficult situation. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you may uh, charge interest, but to your brothers, you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. So, if you, if you have the ability to give, that you're to give in such a way that, in a generous way, that would help them get over the hump, not further indebt them. So um, this is the exhortation. Are we taught to be generous in the New Testament? Are we taught to help out those in need? Yes, we are. So if you happen to be one that has a lot, or even if you have some, then you should use that to do good, the Bible would teach us. Verse 21, keep your vows to the Lord. Verses 24 and 25, 
Um, kind of interesting, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. So you can lay down in the grass. You can just sit there and eat till you can't eat anymore, until you're full. But don't put it in a container. You're not taking, this is not to go vineyard, okay? This, you gotta, it's, you gotta eat while you're in the vineyard. Uh, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So, yeah, you, so you could, you could grab some grain with your hand and you could eat that, but you don't get to get out the combine and go, you know, take up a few of his acres. So it's the Lord's way of taking care of the, you know, an immediate need or even maybe, you know, some of the poor we'll see later. I think this would fall more under just like the immediate need. You're walking, you're taking a journey um, there's not convenience stores all over the place. So what was convenient was the vineyard was the standing grain. Chapter 24, laws relating to divorce and the poor. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness, and that word uncleanness is a very debated word within um, the rabbis. Some said it had to be um, some kind of sexual type of sin. Others said the uncleanness could be if she put too much, I'm not, this is not hyperbole, said if you put too much salt on his eggs. So you have a conservative view and you have a liberal view going way back. Um, Shammai and Hillel, they, they kind of, these two schools of thought. But this is, uh, what, and I think we can be pretty uh, uh, safe in saying that it's not too much salt on the eggs is the uncleanness here. But if that happens, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. So if she, when she was sent out in divorce, if she didn't have the certificate of divorce, she, was gonna, she would not be allowed to be remarried. And so to not have the certificate of divorce, don't think of it in the terms that we do today. To not have that back then would, would mean that you were you're off the market, you could not, nobody would have anything to do with you um, because you, are, you would have still been viewed as, as married without that. And so um, this is why it was so important. Was the certificate of the divorce for the husband? Well, not the one divorcing, it was for the woman. It was protection for the woman. And so this is what the Lord is saying. Um, verse three, if the latter husband detests her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband, who divorced her, may not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as inheritance. So once she was gone from you and married another, she could not come back to you. That, that's what's being stated here. So, um, yeah, there, there, this is such a large subject, um, and I'm going to address the things that the Bible specifically, explicitly addresses as it relates in the New Testament. I am not addressing every issue. So, know that, and if you have a question, then we would encourage you to come talk to one of the pastors. We'll be happy to sit down. There are too many scenarios to run through to try and give explanation for each and every one of them. The New Testament teaches that believing husbands and wives should remain married. 
It's 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15. And uh, let's read that together. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So, um, you know, there is, of course, for the cause of adultery, Jesus talks about that, a, you, you have the grounds to leave that marriage, certainly not advocated for or commanded to or even um, expected that you would. But if that is the way that offended spouse wants to go, they have the freedom to do that. Um, and now Paul says, well, if you're a Christian and you're married to somebody and they're unwilling to be with you, they don't want to remain with you, um, and they depart from you, then, then you're, you're free. You're not under bondage in such cases, which, debated point, I would say bondage in this case is that of remaining single. So you may disagree. We could talk about it later. But it is God's plan that a husband and wife remain married. But because of the hardness of heart, the certificate of divorce is given. And that is something that still happens today. Divorce is still happening. And there's a hardness of heart. So keep your heart soft towards the Lord and soft towards the person that you are married to. The word of the Lord is that you remain with the person who you're with unless they're unwilling to stay with you. And then I can hear all the questions, but what if... That we're both Christians and they don't want to live together, um, give us a call. Because again, there are so many things that have to be asked and understood before a public answer can just be given. Because it's, it's not explicit in scripture. Okay, it's not explicit. Um, so well, what, what if a woman's being abused? Call 911 and get out of that house. And they call us, and we'll sit down, and we'll, we'll be happy to walk through it with you. But call 911. You know, call the police on that chump. Honestly, get them in jail. And let them, let them figure out what they're doing. Maybe it's exactly what they need to do to repent. Okay? So th there's a lot of scenarios out there, right? Um, so give us a call. But th this is what Scripture is explicit on, is that if it's adultery or if an unbelieving spouse says, I don't want to be married to you or your Jesus. I'm done with you. Goodbye. Then it, you have freedom. You're not in bondage in those cases. So um, if you are a two Christians get divorced and they want and you come into our office and you are divorced and you want to get married to somebody else and that spouse is not married to somebody else, we're going to first say, we got to seek about reconciliation. Why? Because the Bible says so. It's not because I say so. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15. The authority of God's word. We don't get to pick and choose. So the, the, here are some 
thoughts and ideas on that. And um, if you have failed in this area, then if you have not repented of it, repent of it and find the grace and the mercy of the Lord and um, walk in the grace of God and enjoy being forgiven. And if you have repented, you have received the grace of God, don't let somebody put a trip on you, okay? Don't let them make you feel like you are never gonna be saved. The, the unpardonable sin is not divorce and remarriage outside of God's prescribed manners. I mean, listen, Paul was a murderer, okay? And he's, he made it in. So we gotta be careful. We gotta make certain that we, we, we walk with this wisely. Uh, verses uh, um, 19 through 22, laws that allow the poor of the land to glean. So what if, what, what is God's plan, this new nation starting out, they don't have social security, they don't have, you know, food stamps, so what are they going to do? What's going to happen for the poor of the land? Well, God's got a, he has an excellent plan in mind for them. Verse 19, and when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, like Ruth, right? And the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So if you go back and get it, God's not going to bless you. Don't be tight-fisted. Be generous. Think about them. When you gather grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for a stranger. So you go through once, you don't get to go through again. So what wasn't ripe and what's going to be produced or what you missed, now the, the widow, the fatherless, they have something to eat. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do the same. You know what it's like to be in down and out. So don't be unkind. Be kind to those that are down and out as well. And again, the principle for us is that of just showing generosity to the needy. And John, first epistle, first John, read it. Lots of truth there for this. But um, this is that Ruth actually goes and she, she does this very thing. She's a widow. She goes into the field of Boaz. She gleans there. She meets Boaz. They get married. And then eventually she is, um, one of her descendants is Jesus. And you can read that about that, um, both in the book of Ruth and then, of course, the genealogies in the gospel. Chapter um, 25 we have laws concerning punishment, animal labor, and the kinsman redeemer. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to move on down. I mean, verse 4 says, if, it, if, you know, if an animal's uh, treading the grain, don't muzzle them and not let them eat. You know, take the muzzle off. This principle is used to say that, you know, those who are um, laboring in the gospel, and it's okay for them to eat the grain of the gospel, right? So this is, this is the point that, or one of the examples that's used. Verses 5 through 10, though, you have the kinsman redeemer. And let, let's read this. Um, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that is, his name not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, 
My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I don't want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Who says the Bible's not fun? And answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. (laughs) So what's going on here? Well, God doesn't want the name blotted out. And God does, I mean, he wants that family to continue. He wants that name to continue. And so this is the plan. When Ruth goes into that field to glean, she she is a widow She was married to an Israelite. She's a Moabite, but they're back in the land. And she goes into a field, the field of a man by the name of Boaz. And he is the second closest relative to her deceased husband. Um, The other brothers died too, and they were married. So that wasn't a possibility. So, but Boaz is a single guy. And when they find this out, um, Naomi gives Ruth some you know, elderly sister advice on how to close the deal. And because she came back from gleaning, when she came back, I mean, she just, she comes back loaded with grain and Naomi and Israelite's like, where in the world did you get all this grain? I don't know, I just, I went out, like you said, and gleaned. Whose field did you go in? Boaz, Boaz, Boaz. Oh, he's a near relative. He's not married. He has, he likes you. Look at everything that he gave you. And the text tells us this. Long story short, they end up getting married. And he fulfills this. He goes to his brother first and said, hey, uh, Troy's interpretation. Uh, he goes to his brother and said, hey, that field's available. Um, you can have that field. You can buy it back. Oh, I think I will. That's a great field. Oh, by the way, there's a bride that goes along with the field because her husband died. You know, remember our, our relative. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, I don't think my wife's going to go for, she'll go for the field. I don't think she's going to go for the lady. So you can have it. So Boaz goes and he buys the field that he might get the bride. Do you see the picture that's painted here? Jesus is that kinsman redeemer. He's a near relative. He took on human flesh. He came here and he took a bride. What kind of bride? Well, the bride is the church, which is made up of Jews and what? Gentiles. Most of us in here are Gentiles. If you're not, you're a Jew, and you're still part of the pride. So you see, you can see how, like, these two things of gleaning the field and the kinsman redeemer, you're like, oh, please. No, actually, look. This is who Jesus is. He is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. Had to be near relative, so he had to come in human flesh. And he had to be willing to pay the price, and he could pay the price. His body and his blood and he gets a bride in the deal. He wasn't after the field as much as he was the bride. So what a beautiful picture. Um, Verses uh, 17 through 19, instruction to destroy the Amalekites. This is where King Saul fails, and he does not destroy the Amalekites. And his throne is removed because he does not obey the word of the Lord. Okay, jeez. This is where you guys should have been listening faster. Um, Let's see, where am I, where am I? I've got a lot of pictures. You know, it goes faster. All right, we'll we'll do this. I'll make it happen. I'll make it happen. Into chapter 26, um, 
there's proclamations that are to be made. Actually, we'll just get through 26. That's what we'll do. And we'll leave the, the last two chapters. We'll leave those off. In chapter 26, um, there are proclamations that are to be made at the tabernacle. There's, a, there's actually a liturgy given of the things that they're supposed to say when they come to the tabernacle. So let's read verse one. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God has given you and put it in a basket. So this wouldn't be a tithe. This is just a basketful. It's, it's, it's representative of thank you. I love this though. I love this. Um, so they would go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall go to the one who is the priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So here's what they're saying, right? Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it before the altar, uh, the Lord your God, and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian. So he's talking about Jacob, about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. Drives me nuts when I hear these Bible scholars that say, yeah, there was about 5,000 people that left in the Exodus. What do you do with populace? What do you do with nation, right? But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage. This is, this is what they're to be reciting. I don't know if they had cue cards. I don't know what they were doing. But th this had to be in their mind. This is what they were saying. Then we cried out to the Lord God our fathers of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and on our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place, has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, you, Yahweh, have given me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So this is, I just want, verse 11. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given you in your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. This is a great lesson on thankfulness, right? And so there's something beautiful about the tangible, growing it, harvesting it, gathering it together, putting it in the basket, traveling to the place, laying it at the altar, declaring the goodness and the greatness of God's love for us. I think it is a good thing for us to rehearse in our own minds all the things that the Lord has given to us. So, a homework assignment. Walk through every room of your house, even that closet. You know which closet I'm talking about. That junk drawer. And begin to look at all the stuff that God has given to you. Begin to think, I, I dare you to try and say thank you for every item. Lord, I thank you for these 10 metal forks and these 15 plastic spoons. And I mean, th th it, but just to think, all of this has come from you, Lord. You know, it'll make us so much more appreciative, so much more thankful. Realizing, God, you have given, Yahweh, you gave me these things. You've given it to me. You, you gave this promise way back when. But now here I am today, I mean, from Jacob to me, and here I come with this sacrifice, Lord Yahweh, you're still doing what you said you were gonna do.
and to be thankful for all that we have, it's easy to complain. You don't have to say amen. I know it is. But don't complain. That's not the language of the Christian. The language of the Christian is praise, not complaints. If you are in Eora, change. <laughs> you know, just change. Well, how do I know? Ask somebody you trust to tell you the truth, and they will, if they tell you the truth, then you'll know whether you're a, you know, a Tigger or an Eeyore. You know, you'll find out if you're a praiser or a complainer. So this is what they were to do. Um, they were come together. In verses 12 through 15, the Israelites had a second pronouncement they would make every third year at the giving of the tithe for the poor. So every third year they'd give a, a, another tithe for the poor. And um, what they were to say, let's see if we can just pick it up. Look around verse 14. Um, no, no, back up a little bit more. Verse 13. You, then you shall say before the Lord your God. This is what you say out loud as you bring this, this offering for the poor. I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you've commanded me. Boy, I think all of us should find a place in our life, in prayer, in our prayer closet to say, Lord, I have done everything that you've kept. Oh, I can't say that. Mm. Okay, then maybe we should have some repentance going on. And then say, Lord, I will... Now, moving forward, do all this. But you can see how the poor are taking care of on, on so many different levels. And then the last proclamation um, that we see um, there in verses 16 through 19, and we'll just we'll close with this. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today, you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you. Oh, we make a proclamation twofold to the Lord, right? That um, we are his and we're going to obey him. And then he makes a proclamation. So one goes north, right? Heads to heaven. The other one comes down. And this is a proclamation of the Lord. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people just as he has promised you, that you keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all the nations which he has made in praise in the name, in name and in honor that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God just as he has spoken. Well, we're, we're told in Peter that we're a chosen people, that we're a peculiar people, that we're set apart, that we're to be holy, a nation of priests, that we're to obey all the commands and the Lord has promised to bless us. So, yeah, you know, we can take this over and we can see many of these same proclamations that we make to the Lord, I'm yours and I'll keep your commandments. And the Lord is saying, I love you, I've chosen you, I'll bless you. These are things the Lord is still saying in the new covenant. So some good, chapter 26, I encourage you, go back and ponder this chapter and maybe think creatively with your spouse or even with your children. How can we begin to maybe write something out like this for what the Lord does? So last thing. So they, they grew, they grew the, you know, the grain, they harvested the grain, they put it in the basket, they brought it, they, they, 
you know, made this pronouncement of worship to the Lord when they gave it. And so there was this, it was, it, your hands were all over it. Um, so if you've been here for any amount of time, you've, one of the first things that people notice is like they don't pass an offering basket or, you know, a bag or whatever, plate. And um, so um, some people conclude, oh, they don't like passing the plate and whatever. They must think there's something wrong with it. That's incorrect. That's not how we got here. So we're 29 years down the road from when we began. So how did this come about at Calvary Chapel that we don't pass this? Because when we began, we were really, really small. And it felt awkward. <laughs> it felt awkward. And so I was just like, you know, why don't we just put it, you know, it's kind of like, you got anything? No, you? No, okay. And then, you know, it, just, it was that small, right? You know, and so, so we were like, well, let's just, put a, let's just put a box on the wall and we'll tell people. And um, it's it great. When I told the elders we were going to do this, they're like, well, can we pass the box? I said, if you can pass the wall, it's bolted on there. You can pass it. Yeah, go for it. And we have never lacked. And it's just become something that's more of a tradition than it's some statement of principle that we don't do it, in case you wondered. By the way, Pastor Chuck Smith would not like this idea. And he told us he didn't like it. Here's the reason why he didn't, and it, it relates because he said, while we're singing and worshiping, there's something really nice about taking what you've earned and what you've brought into the house of the Lord and in that song of worship, dropping it in. And I agree with him on that. So understand um, how we're doing this is not because of we think it's wrong. But um, I just, I, whether, and, and of course now, probably half of you give online. So it's even one step further removed so I'm just going to tell you to do this. Before you click send or every now and then if it's on auto draft or whatever, just take some time though. Take some time and don't let it just become a mindless thing that, you know, yeah, I pay Bank of America and Jesus, you know? No, I mean, take some time and let it be worship. Don't you think? And, and if you're coming in, you know, take some time, drop it, pray. Lord, here you go. I'm going to go put this in the box. And Lord, I just want to thank you for all you've done. So a little bit of um, insight of kind of how we got to where we are with giving, but also uh, maybe just a, a reminder that we really do need to make this an act of worship as we give. So, um, yeah, worship team, come on out. Why don't you lead us in a portion of a song as we close. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father. We've talked about being thankful and coming and worshiping and giving you glory and honor. So, Lord, we do. Thank you for everything you've given to us. Thank you for the clothes that we're wearing. Thank you for the food that we ate. Thank you for the place we left to get here, the place we'll go to. Thank you for the jobs. Thank you for the generosity of others that maybe are helping us out. But thank you for the car or the bus. However we got here, Lord, we have much to be thankful for. You said you would take care of us. Jesus, you said that. And here we are today, Jesus. You've taken care of us. And we give you praise, and we give you honor, and we give you glory. Make us a thankful, generous people, Lord. Make us a people committed to holiness or separate from the world. Make us a people that rightly divide the word of truth. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.